Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses 1 to 16 this morning. Matthew 26, 1 to 16 is where we'll be. Marriage is a symbol of love. A marital ceremony is exactly that. You come together with your spouse-to-be and you commit in front of a congregation to love them until death do you part. I did that on June 10th, 2006. Yes, I looked at my notes, but... (laughs) I told myself I wasn't going to do that. I was not going to look. I was going to just... I just wanted to be sure. (laughs) I did that. I, I stood in front of a congregation of people there on a lawn in Waco, Texas, in front of our pastor, Andrea and I, held hands, we put rings on each other's fingers, and we exchanged vows. And I said, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, for better or for worse, in, for richer or for poorer. I was holding her to that. I made that commitment. But what if you asked me the question, how do I know whether or not you love your wife? What would I say? In fact, how do you know that the person that's standing up there at the altar or in front of the pastor and in front of the congregation, how do you know that those two people actually love each other? How do you know? Has there ever been in the history of mankind two people that stood up in front of the congregation, pledging fealty to one another, love and adoration of one another, till death do us part, have they said that and they didn't mean it? How do you know? This morning in the passage that we're going to read, we're going to see love on display. What does it actually look like? When someone values the person in front of them. What does it look like when somebody actually treasures something else? We're going to see that this morning in our passage in Matthew 26. Let's read verses 1 to 16. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests... And the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Let's pray over the text of Scripture this morning. Heavenly Father, in this text are so many truths that we need to know. We are dependent entirely on Your Spirit to show them to us. Father, I pray that everything that's about to be said and talked about be true, be uplifting to Your name, but also be understood by us. Open our minds in order for us to even understand the word that's in front of us, open our hearts, that we may obey the convictions that you place there. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back in Matthew. After a, a ten-week hiatus into the book of Psalms, we're now back in the book of Matthew. And Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, we will be finished with Matthew by the end of the year. All right, We've already got it plotted out. We're going to do some Christmassy things right there around Christmas, but we will be done sometime in December. We'll come back as like a little review right there at the beginning of the year, and then we'll be on to another book that I haven't decided about. But because we've been gone for 10 weeks, I think it would behoove us to just remind us of how the book of Matthew has actually been fleshed out before us. How, what we've actually seen in it, some common themes that have run throughout it, just to remind us, to get our feet back on the solid ground here of where we've been so we understand the context. Remember, Matthew, at the very beginning of the book, is establishing Jesus as king. That's the first thing you got to remember. Matthew is out to establish Jesus is king. And how does he do that? But from the first chapter, he lays out a genealogy. It's not just any genealogy. It is the genealogy of Abraham and of David. So he situates Jesus right there in the family of David, which means that he is the rightful heir to the throne of David. So if you're a Jew and you're listening to this, you might think to yourself, oh wow, this guy is of the line. I would expect if there were to be a throne actually opened up, in Jerusalem, and someone were to sit on it, this man would qualify. But then Matthew goes a little bit further, and he says that he's not just a king in the earthly sense. He's also a king in the heavenly sense. Because, see, this, this man that you know as of the line of David is also born of the Virgin Mary. Born of a virgin? That's not supposed to be true, but it is. He is born of the Virgin Mary and of the Spirit of God. So we know that this person, Jesus, is no ordinary person, but he is truly God and truly man. So he is a king in every way imaginable. And for the first three chapters, Matthew aims to lay that out for you. This is how we know that this man is a king. And really throughout the entire book, he's out to prove this to you. But Jesus comes onto the scene in chapter 4 as an adult, and he begins preaching. And Matthew is going to show Jesus establishing this kingdom, but not just establishing it. He's actually inviting you to be a part of it. 
Well, that's a game changer there. This is not a kingdom that we just see from a distance. This is a kingdom we're invited to take part in. And from chapter 4 all the way to chapter 7, Jesus teaches on the Sermon of the Mount that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's inviting you to be a part of it, but you got to know something about it. See, the citizens of Christ's kingdom have a value system that is upside down from the rest of the world. See, the world values might and strength and power, but Jesus' citizens, citizens of his kingdom, value poverty of spirit, value meekness, and a mournful attitude. Citizens of Christ's kingdom are completely different than citizens of the world. They are upside down, you might say, from that of the world. So then we move on after chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, and we see that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing is not just a mental kind of kingdom. It's not just something that you believe in, in your heart, or think of in your mind. This is a kingdom that actually has a real-world impact in the here and now. Jesus is coming in to do battle, sure, but it's not the kind of physical battle that we might be inclined to think. He's not coming in to actually, with a sword, kill somebody. He's coming in to reverse the effects of the fall. And we see that in chapters 8 and 9, where there's nine miracles that take place, where Jesus comes in and actually raises people near death, heals the paralytic, the blind, casts out demons. The kind of kingdom that he's bringing is spiritual, sure, but it's also very physical. It's not necessarily driving out all the earthly powers necessarily, per se. It's doing battle with the effects of the fall, something that permeates every society, whether Roman or otherwise. This is different altogether. We move on from those miracles, and we get to chapter 11, and we realize that there's a decision that you have to make about who Jesus really is, who you think he is. What we find out is that every person, actually, has to make a decision on what they actually think about Jesus. You've got to evaluate the facts. What do you think? Is he true or is he not? And we get some very surprising answers. For example, we get John the Baptist going, I'm not really sure. Sending messengers to Jesus and saying, are you really the one or should we look for another? We, of course, get the Pharisees and the religious leaders saying, this ain't the guy. Move on. But then we get a very surprising community. People that are poor people that are nothings in society, actually saying, yes, he is the Christ. There's no doubt. And Jesus even praises God for revealing to these little ones the fact that he is the Messiah. It seems in keeping with Matthew's gospel up to this point, God is revealing truth to the ones that you would least expect to believe. The prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, the rejects of society. 
So then we move into chapters 13 and 19, and we see there in 13 to 19 this definition that Jesus is giving of what it means to be a disciple. You think you're a disciple, but do you really understand what you're signing up for? What does it actually mean to follow Jesus? You have to remember, when we begin the Gospel of Matthew, this is going somewhere. There's an end in mind, and the end, as Matthew makes abundantly clear, is that Jesus is going to establish His church, and He's going to define its parameters. Who is in the church, and who is out of the church? And what we see is that that community is defined a very, a very particular way. And there's an incredibly important passage right in the middle of Matthew, in chapter 13, verse 44 which demonstrates for us that a man finds a treasure hidden in a field. And in his joy, he covers it up and goes and sells all that he owns. And Jesus, in Matthew 13, is pausing for a moment to help you understand what is a disciple of Christ. It's one who finds the kingdom of heaven this way, who is, once they find it, willing to sell everything he owns to purchase it. Turns out to be a very pivotal passage for our passage this morning. What does it mean to be a disciple? Finally, after chapter 19, we start getting some clarity as to what is about to happen. As we realize that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, that he's introduced, that you have to evaluate, that you have to make a decision about, that you are in the process of growing in as a disciple, this kingdom that he's bringing is over and against all earthly powers, especially the kingdom of the Jews. This kingdom that he's bringing has no substitute. There is no one who gets to encounter this kingdom on their feet. They must kneel before it. We see that especially with the Jews as Jesus just demonstrates for the disciples there what is going to happen within the next 40 years to the kingdom of the Jews. It's going to collapse when the Romans move in. He then tells them what's going to happen following that. Where it's going to grow. And then eventually he's going to come back and he's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to judge all people. And this is what they must do. They must prepare for it. And as it inches closer and closer, we see that this whole thing is headed towards an ultimate showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees, the kingdom of the Jews. Now, the last time we were in Matthew, we saw that scene of judgment where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And the question that we wrestled with that morning was, how do you respond to Jesus that's the ultimate question. Jesus is going to judge everyone, the living and the dead, separating them, sheep and goats, and it's going to be on the question of how do you respond to Him as Messiah. There is a community of people that Jesus is establishing, His church. And here's how the church throughout the Gospel of Matthew is defined. Are you listening? Here's how the church is defined. It's a group of people, a group of people, whom God has given insight 
into the identity and value of Jesus. It's a group of people whom God has given insight into the identity and value of Jesus and who respond to him with faith and trust. God has given them insight into the truth and value or the identity and value of Jesus and they respond to Jesus with faith and trust. It's the church. Here we go. We're entering into the conclusion of the book of Matthew. It's these last three chapters where Jesus absolutely changes the entire world. Jesus is going to be on trial for his life, and his authority over God's kingdom is going to come into question by some of his disciples. How can a man who claims these things die? What does that mean for us? If the one who is supposed to be over the kingdom of God is put to death. And what we're going to see, starting with this morning, all the private evaluations of Jesus, all those decisions that the disciples and people around Jesus have been making in their hearts, they're all going to be put to the test right now. Over the next three chapters, they're all going to be put to the test. We'll see. You've been following Jesus this whole time, but do you really value him? But we're going to see what you're made of as the one you say you value is put to death. In this passage, we're going to see a couple of things. First thing we're going to see are three statements about Jesus' worth. Things are coming to a head, and there's going to be three statements by three different either groups of people or people, three different characters will say in this story that make statements about what they think Jesus is actually worth. Some of them are going to be stated outright, and some of them are going to be implied. And we're going to see that in the text. Remember, Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives where he's just given the what we call the Olivet Discourse, where he's told them what's going to happen. He's told them the Romans are going to march in 40 years, and so on and so, so forth, and take down the city of Jerusalem. Then he prepares them for how he's going to come back and judge all things. And he's told them that they've just got to live in a, a perpetual state of readiness. Now, following those statements, Matthew tells us that Jesus says very plainly to his disciples, what's about to happen? As plain as you could possibly say it, he tells them, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. Now, this statement quite obviously sails right over their head. As we've seen time and again, it sails right past them. They have no idea what is coming. And what makes that obvious is that in the coming chapters, they're caught completely off guard when he dies. They're running and going, wait, this was not according to the plan. Have you not been paying attention? Well, obviously not. It sailed right over their head. This is actually going to turn out to be really important for a number of reasons, not least of which is what happens next. Somewhere in the town... Just across town, in Caiaphas' palace, we are privy to a conversation that happens there amongst some um, of the high, pri the high priest and his servants and things like that. He says this, they plan to kill him, but not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And do you understand how that contradicts what Jesus just said? Jesus said, the Passover's coming in two days. I'm going to be delivered up and I'm going to be crucified. 
flash over across town under the cloak of darkness where they say, we're not going to do it at the Passover lest there be an uproar amongst the people. So there's conflicting reports already. Which one is going to prove to be true? So the scene then shifts again across town or just, just next door to where Jesus is standing in Bethany, and it says to, in the home of Simon the leper. Now, Bethany is near the Mount of Olives. It's on the same kind of mountain range, if you will. And Bethany is a place that was frequented by Jesus. So every time he comes into Jerusalem, at least every time we see it in the Scriptures, he goes to the home of his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And it turns out he also knows somebody else there, Simon the leper where he frequently stays. And so while they're there, reclined at table, which, remember, means that they're laying on their side, their head is pointed towards the table, they're laying on their side, their feet are back this way, they're laying on like these little pillows or couches, I guess like beanbag chairs is probably the closest we have to it. They're laying there, and a woman comes in with an alabaster flask, and she breaks it and pours it over Jesus' head. And it's right there where she does this. The disciples, in verse 8, make the first value statement. Now, keep in mind, this is the disciples that say this. Why this waste? Think about that statement for just a second. Let it hit you. The disciples are sitting there watching this happen, and their immediate reaction is, why this waste? Do you understand, woman, what you have done? You've wasted precious ointment on this guy. Do you feel the shock of that statement? You've wasted this ointment on that guy. In other words, Jesus is not worth the ointment that you've just poured on his head. That's what they're saying. Do you see how that's a value statement? That's an assessment of value right there. Now, mind you, the disciples have just been told that Jesus is going to be crucified and he's going to be buried. But even if they understood that, they clearly don't understand why. I want you to also notice something that Matthew has done here. We know from John's gospel, John tells us that Judas is the one that said that. Now, if I told you Judas said that, you'd go, Well, yeah, of course. Judas was a scoundrel. He's the one that said that. But let me ask you, does Matthew tell you it was Judas? He doesn't. In fact, Mark tells you some of them. Matthew doesn't tell you that. Matthew puts the blame on all the disciples. In other words, Judas might have said it, but we were all thinking it. We were all thinking the same thing. And I want you to see what's being underscored here is that all of the disciples, his closest followers, do not understand the value of Jesus. But the woman does. The disciples have said in verse 9, this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. Now, there's, there's a couple of things that we're not told in regard to this woman. The first thing that we're not told is who this woman is. Now, John tells us that this is Mary. Matthew does not tell us that. He just tells us it was a woman. 
John tells us it was Mary. This is the same Mary that is the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. It's the same Mary that you remember in the story in Luke chapter 10. Jesus comes into the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And Jesus begins teaching. And Martha, who is ever the servant, is trying to host everybody and trying to fill their drinks and make sure they have plenty of food and all kinds of things. And Mary has taken a seat at Jesus' feet and chooses rather to listen to his teaching. And do you remember what Martha says to Jesus in Luke 10, 40? He says, it says this, But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Now, Matthew doesn't mention who this woman is, only that it is a woman. And that coincides exactly with what he's already laid out in the gospel, that the followers of Jesus, the true followers of Jesus, come from the most unexpected sources. Here are these mighty disciples who are followers of Jesus, who don't think he's worth a jar of oil. And here is Mary, who absolutely gets it. And it turns out that Mary has understood it from the beginning. Proof of that is that she pours out this perfume over his head. And here Matthew tells us it's worth a large sum. This is the other thing that we're not told in this gospel is how much exactly it's worth. John tells us it's worth 300 denarii. Mark tells us it's probably worth more than 300 denarii. Let this hit you. That's about $50,000 in today's money. Mary breaks a jar worth about $50,000, the average year's wages, and pours it out over Jesus' head. There is little doubt that this jar of ointment is among the most expensive things that she owns. There is little to no question this is absolutely one of the most expensive things that she owns. Now, ironically, she doesn't say anything verbally. She doesn't actually speak. But she makes the loudest statement in the whole passage because she's saying that Jesus is worth everything that I own. Can you imagine what could be asked of her that she wouldn't give? If she would give a $50,000 bottle of ointment, what wouldn't she give? I want to remind you of something just, just briefly. Matthew is not telling this story chronologically. How do we know that? Remember what he said at the beginning of this passage? Jesus said, it's two days before the Passover and I'm going to be handed over. This story, he doesn't tell us when it takes place. John tells us it takes place six days before the Passover. Matthew has taken this story and has inserted it right here in this narrative. Why? Because now it's time to ask the question, what is he worth? What do the disciples think he's worth? What does Mary think he's worth? What's the right answer? 
Matthew wants us to ask that question, to analyze it. And Mary tells us unequivocally, he is worth everything. Now this is a pivotal passage. There's a pivotal passage that I mentioned in, in Matthew 13, 44, that says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure, is like treasure hidden in a field, which man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Now some have misread this passage. Some have misread this passage and they interpret it to be, I'm the treasure hidden in a field and Jesus is the man that comes in search of the treasure and he finds me and then he buys the field. I've even seen that interpretation printed in some children's Bibles. It's very patently false and you can see that just by the text of Scripture when he says that the treasure in the field is the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's why he says the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Not you are like treasure hidden in a field. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. I mean, parables are difficult to understand. We don't have to make them more complicated than they really are. This is a major theme going throughout Matthew and also all of the Gospels. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you want to be his disciple, then you must value him above everything else. Period. That's what it means to be a disciple. Nothing can be of more value than Christ. So much so that everything you own is worthless by compare. And if you were asked to give it, you would, because you treasure Christ more than anything else. Why is it that there are Christians that will voluntarily go to death for Christ? Why is it that we would see 21 Christians kneeling on a shore in front of a camera having their heads cut off because of what they believe? It's because... They value Christ even more than their own life. Here is this woman in this scene demonstrating exactly what Matthew has already told you through the lips of Jesus. She's found a treasure hidden in a room, reclining at table, and she is willing to give up her most precious possession to anoint him for burial. Some will say to her, as the disciples do here, what a waste. What a waste. Some might even say, as you might say, what a sacrifice. Wow. Look at what she gave. But do you understand something about her? What she is saying this jar of ointment, in comparison to him, holds no value whatsoever. What wouldn't she give? Would she not give her own house? Would she not give her own life? Would she not give her own children? Would she not give whatever he asked of her? Here he is going to be buried. In haste, mind you. And she prepares him for burial with the most precious thing that she has. Well, Judas, in turn, 
he's had enough. And he's ready to go to the chief priests, where he says to them, How much? How much will you give me if I turn him over to you? To which they settle on 30 pieces of silver. Now, if you were to do the breakdown, do the math, 30 pieces of silver is nothing to sneeze at. It's about a month's worth of wages. About a tenth of what Mary pours over his head. But that's not how we're meant to understand the 30 pieces of silver. You see, later in this gospel, and we'll spend much more time on it when we get to chapter 27, but the 30 pieces of silver, actually, Matthew is going to connect back to the Old Testament. Where 30 pieces of silver will be paid to a prophet... And there, in that passage in Zechariah, we're supposed to understand the 30 pieces of silver as a paltry sum. It's not nearly what he's worth. Matthew is going to make that connection explicit when we get there. And what we're supposed to understand here is that Judas Iscariot settles for a very paltry sum to hand Jesus over. So when it comes to a value statement, here are the disciples saying over and against works done for the poor. Jesus doesn't compare. Mary is saying when it comes to a $50,000 bottle of ointment, it doesn't compare to what Jesus is worth. And Judas is saying he's worth a paltry sum. But now I want you to see that there are three actions that come from these three characters that tell you everything about what they value. It's these three actions that come from the value system. So first comes the value that they place on Christ. And then following that comes the actions that they actually do. The values are in place first, followed by the actions. First, the disciples, they're the easiest ones. Perhaps it's a combination of the low value that they place on Jesus, or maybe it's a high value they place on the oil, or a combination of the two. But Matthew tells us in verse 8 exactly how we're supposed to read that verse. He says this, And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. You know what that means? Angry. They were angry that she would use her own oil in this way. They were angry. Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum. They're actually angry over what she's done. And they're not just saying this in their own head. They're not just muttering it under their breath. They're actually chastising the woman for it, so much so that Jesus intervenes in verse 10, and he says, Why do you trouble the woman? They're actually calling her to the carpet for what she's done. Are you an idiot? They might be saying. Now, every bit of me wants to let the disciples off the hook here. It's a $50,000 bottle of ointment. It's not cheap. And, truth be told, they're itinerant ministers to the poor. They're preaching the good news. They're aiding the poor. They're helping them. As they go from town to town, honestly, the poor could really use the money. It could go to very practical use. And it seems, the other reason I want to let them off the hook, they want to help the poor. Do you really berate somebody who wants to help the poor? 
But that's just it, isn't it? The anger that's produced in them is not because the oil was used. But do you understand? Because it was used on the wrong object? That's what they're saying. We're not angry that it was used. We're angry that you used it on him. Values. How low they understood Jesus to actually be worth caused the anger and the indignation. But look at what the woman does. Jesus responds to the disciples in a way that actually gives us a little bit of insight into the woman's motivations, into what she was thinking and why she did what she did. Look at verse 12. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Hang on that word there for just a second, burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So in other words, she values Jesus so highly highly, that the most precious thing, the most expensive thing that she has would be used to prepare him for uh, for burial. Now, I don't think the disciples totally are picking up on the whole burial thing. He obviously told them at the beginning of this passage, and they're not totally getting it as will become evident later on. It appears to be a shock to them, as I've said. But she doesn't appear, notice, in the beginning of this passage. She's not there. It doesn't seem like So presumably she doesn't hear that he's going to die, be put to death, and be buried. Now, maybe she's been around some other time when Jesus has been talking about this and she's picked up on the fact that here it is, we're coming to the end and he's about to be buried. Maybe she understands that or maybe she intuits something that's going to happen and God just gives her that level of understanding. I don't know. But what I do know is that she has grasped something very true right now, and Jesus tells us that. She has grasped that he is going to be buried and that this action would be fitting for his burial. And so without hesitation, she does it. But Jesus says, wherever this gospel is proclaimed. Do you hear that? Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, What does gospel mean? Good news, right? Wherever this good news is proclaimed. What good news? The good news of his burial is proclaimed. That's what he's saying. I'm going to be buried. She's anointing me for burial. And wherever the good news of my burial is proclaimed, she'll be mentioned. So she's understanding something deep down that this is God in the flesh and that he's about to be buried and that that is good news for me. Do you understand what that means about her jar of ointment? She's not breaking it in mourning. She's breaking it in joy and in celebration. It doesn't seem like that in the passage doesn't seem like that when we hear the word burial. But what she's demonstrating is that she grasps the reality of the gospel, which is we value Christ above all else. And when we are called to give everything that we own, we do it without question. 
That is what it means to be a disciple. Judas, on the other hand, holds Jesus in very low esteem. And what does, what's the action that it produces? Betrayal. It is nothing for him to turn over the Savior of the world, whereas the woman sees the inexpensive perfume as a cheap price for the death of the one that will save her. Judas is certainly unwilling to spend his life for Jesus. Jesus at the beginning says, the Son of Man will be delivered up. Judas at the end says, how much to deliver him up. Judas is accomplishing exactly what Jesus prophesied. Judas heard him prophesy it and apparently... It means nothing to him. All indications are, at least, that Judas does understand that following Jesus to this ultimate course could mean death for him. And that is a price he is unwilling to pay. He is called to the carpet to give his life. Remember, when Jesus is arrested and he's taken off, where do the disciples go? They run. Why do they run? Because if they can do this to Jesus then they can do it to his disciples. So they flee for fear for their own life. John even tells us they're standing behind locked doors when the resurrection happens. So Judas realizes that the chief priests, the rulers, are after him. Evidence of that is that he went to find them. How much to deliver him up. But what Judas is saying to everyone Not only is Jesus worth this little, but when I value him that lowly, I'll run anytime my life is threatened. The irony here is that he'll be the first of the disciples to give up his life. Someone once said, for whoever would save his life will lose it. Judas' actions of betrayal make no mistake about it, is a calculated decision of value. He has tabulated what Jesus' life and ministry, what gospel proclamation, what Jesus' ultimate death would mean over and against his own mortality, and he has chosen to try to save his own life. In the end, he says his life is worth more, and so he sells him out for a measly sum. I want you to understand something very true about the gospel. It's deep, it's pivotal to our understanding of what we're even doing here as a church body. We haven't understood the gospel until Jesus becomes precious to us. Do you understand that? Until we learn or we understand the value of Jesus, We haven't truly understood the gospel. Often, and it's become even truer of the last probably hundred years or so of church history, we have valued decisions over heartfelt value. We've asked the question of people in the pews, what decision do you make? Here's heaven, here's hell, choose one or the other. And we've put the emphasis on their decision. 
Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Sinner, don't you understand? Choose one or the other. We've asked little question about heart-level value. We've done the same to our children. Some dark corner of their room, we ask them to pray a prayer that's not in the Scriptures. Make a decision, child. Heaven or hell, tell me what your decision is. Yes or no. Somehow we're shocked when they say yes. But we don't ask the question of value. What does your heart treasure? Do you understand that the question of salvation is not what do you choose? The question of salvation is what does your heart value? The choice will come if your heart is valuing the right thing. What if you asked of me, Michael, do you love your wife? And I responded, I said I do. Yes, but Michael, do you love your wife? I take her out to dinner. Yes, but do you love your wife? I tell her all the time how much I love her. Do you love your wife? I work really hard to make a living. Do you love your wife? It's a different question, isn't it? What do you say? What do you choose versus what do you know? What's your heart level value? Matthew is bringing this question to us. Do you love Jesus? I was baptized at the age of eight. No. Do you love Jesus? I prayed the prayer. I said yes. Do you love Jesus? I read my Bible and I pray. Do you understand? None of those things produce a Christian. None of those things make a Christian. The question that Matthew is asking, and he's forcing you to answer, do you love Jesus? That's the question. Do you love him? Not do you go to church, not do you read your Bible, do you love him? Are all of those things produced from a love, or are they done so that other people will think you have a love? Genuine belief in Jesus is not a statement. It's not a confession. It's not a profession of faith. It is a value, a love that is first heart level and then proceeds forth in confession, prayer, adoration. What we're striving to be as a church body is a community of people whom God has revealed the value of Christ. And who have gone forth in faith and absolute trust of him. Why? Because when God changed our hearts, we loved him. That's the question. What's he worth to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray 
that you would continue to testify to your goodness to us. We understand that all the works that we do could never produce saving grace. That is why it is grace. It is your choosing, and we are grateful for it. Father, I pray that as we come together, as we hear your word preached, as we stir one another up to love and good deeds, that our hearts might be kindled anew, that the sparks, the embers that you already placed there might be kindled anew in us, that we might come to understand, to know more, and to love and treasure Christ that you have given to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.